Well, good morning. It's wonderful to be with you again this morning, all of us together. Please open with me in your Bibles to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 53. We're going to spend our time this morning in this uh, very uh, rightly famous chapter of, of Isaiah. I think this is an excellent time for us to... Uh, pause in our progression through the Gospel of Mark as Bob is leading us through through Mark and to go here in particular to Isaiah 53. And I think that this is going to be uh, very advantageous for us for three reasons. Uh, number one, we've just seen last week in Mark chapter 14 the anguish of the Son of God as he prepared for his hour uh, that has come at last. Uh, Isaiah 53 is going to let us see more clearly the source of that anguish. So Bobby mentioned that, he is, that Christ is beginning to taste this now, to see what is coming. Uh, and I, my hope is that as a result of our time this morning, we will be able to see it more clearly as well. And it will also set the stage for us as we move uh, into Mark chapter 15 and prepare to study the crucifixion of Christ. So that's the first reason I think this is going to be very helpful for us uh, particularly right now. The second reason is that it is just always helpful uh, nearing the time of Christmas to pair a uh, careful focus on his humble birth with a focus on his humble death. Uh, he tells us in Mark ten forty five that that's the reason that he came. He came to die. As he put it, he came to uh, give his life as a ransom for many. And so it's fitting that we would go back and remind ourselves of what he's preparing to do here as he walks toward the cross. And the third reason for this this morning is thinking beyond Christmas. Um, in the picture of the cross that we're going to see here this morning, we have the greatest display of who God, in fact, is. The person, the character of God is set on display at the cross in a way that we do not see it anywhere else as Jesus suffers willingly in order to bear the wrath of God against sinners. This is what we will see this morning. The simple fact is that there is no more clearly cross-centered an Old Testament passage than Isaiah 53. In fact, if you look at the pictures of Isaiah 53 and you ask how many places, how many times does the New Testament draw back to this chapter, point to it, the New Testament references the realities of Isaiah 53 no fewer than 44 times. One chapter of the Old Testament. This is a big deal in our understanding of who Christ is and what he has done. Uh, this chapter presents for us and solves the fundamental problem of all of humanity. And that is that if God is holy and we are not, how, how can there be any hope? For us at all. We sense that impossibility in a number of places. When the Lord revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34, you remember what he said to Moses concerning himself. He said of himself, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. How, how can these things be at the same time? 
You think of Romans 3. How can it be that God would be just and the justifier of sinners? How? As we continue on in our study of Mark, we're about to see the solution laid out right in front of us. Uh, And what we hear this morning really is a commentary of what is going on, laying out exactly what is taking place as Jesus goes to the cross. And the detail we're going to hear it in this morning in Isaiah 53 is astonishing. I was thinking about the timing of the writing of this of these words. Some of you may not know and kids in here you you probably aren't aware of this. Are you all paying attention? Listen to this. We're about to read Isaiah here this Old Testament prophet uh, lay out for us details about what's going to happen when Jesus goes and dies on the cross. Okay, that's what we're about to hear. Guys, do you know when Isaiah wrote these words down? You know he wrote these words over 700 years before Jesus was ever born? And it's just amazing. Keep that in mind here as you're reading this. You're going to hear what you know about what Jesus did on the cross. And just remember, this was written down 700 years before, before he even came. It is remarkable. It's remarkable. We're going to read all 12 verses of the chapter here as we begin. If you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, And with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, 
and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his life to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And Father, we come before you now as we come to this time, this precious time to us in your word, and we ask for your grace to be poured out on us. We thank you for the opportunities you give us in these mornings to glorify you together, to share one another's burdens and to rejoice with one another and to show one another to be a people who are submitted to your word. Father, help us now to do that, to do it from our hearts. Make us hungry for the food that is the Holy Scripture. And God, we thank you that you have kindly and mercifully laid it before us this morning. We ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to work through this chapter by breaking it up into four pieces. We can see four realities that are all connected to the cross of Christ, being emphasized each in their turn as we work through this chapter. And these are what we're going to see connected to the sacrifice that Jesus makes. We're going to see humility, affliction, propitiation, and then finally, reward. And if you're taking notes, you can use those four words to sort of structure your outline. Humility, affliction, propitiation, and reward. We see humility in the first three verses of this chapter. Can I read these to you again? Bring them back to our minds. Verses 1, 2, and 3 say, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So he's going to be talking about this arm of the Lord. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And stop there. This is a description of what, what uh, verse 1 calls the arm of the Lord. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, and then the description picks up. One of the things that we have to understand as we come into verse 1 here is that this is not the first time that Isaiah has talked about the arm of the Lord. This is an, a reality. It's an idea that he has already been uh, visiting and, uh, and pointing out. Prior to, and if we look at the context, it's one thing is very clear. When he speaks of the arm of the Lord, he is speaking of God. God is the one who's put on display as the arm of the Lord is revealed. There's a couple of places I would point out to you here. Look back at chapter 51, verse 9, very quickly. The arm of the Lord is mentioned there. He says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old. The generations of long ago, in verse 10, was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? Now, he's talking there about what? He's talking there about Moses and the parting of the Red Sea, right? Who parted the Red Sea? God parted the Red Sea. And in 51.9 here, he's attributing this to what he's calling the arm of the Lord. So this is a reference to the power of God on display. We see it again in Isaiah 52, verse 10. 
This incredible picture of God rolling up his sleeve. How terrifying is that? Isaiah 52.10, The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So first recognize that the arm of the Lord that's described here is a reference to God himself. The power of God being manifested before us. And yet, verse 2 does something here. Verse 2 says that when he is revealed, when the arm of the Lord is revealed, the personhood of this arm of the Lord is distinguishable. You notice that? Verse 2 says, he grew up before him like a young plant. I find that interesting. That this one who is God, when he shows up, will be in some way distinguishable from God. You see a, a, a reference to Trinitarian realities here as Son comes and grows up before Father. That's unexpected. I think what comes in verse 2 following that is every bit as unexpected uh, as that. So notice the picture here. God is rolling up his sleeve, ready to act and to act personally, and he extends into human history in this way. And what does it look like? What would you expect that to look like when God bears his arm and reaches into human history? Movies could try to portray this. But in verses 2 and 3, what we find is that for us, it looked unimpressive. It looked like humility. Do you see the descriptions in these verses? Verse 2, no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. One man wrote about this. To such an extent was he but a man among men, as he walked among us, that the ordinary tests of beauty, looks, majesty, impressiveness, and appearance could each be applied with negative results. Not expected when the arm of the Lord casts into human history to act. And of course, this applies more than ever at the cross, uh, this, uh, this description of appearance and what follows. Uh, because at the cross, we know that Jesus was beaten beyond recognition. And I find it interesting, John this morning referenced the last verses of um, Isaiah 52, just a few verses above this. You can glance up at verses 14 and 15 and get a description there of the appearance-altering beating that Jesus takes in his trial and prior to his crucifixion. Verse 3, he is despised. He's rejected by men. He is not esteemed. He's so acquainted with grief that when men look at him, men hide their faces. And the picture here is not one of men hiding their faces in sympathy with this one. Uh, This is more a sense of awkwardness, looking upon one so low as this. You hide your children's eyes from such a thing. That's what happens. This is on display at the cross, supremely in terms of our, our visible experience of it. But we can't hear this and think only of the cross. Just think about it. At what point in Jesus' life was his condition not scandalously humble? The first ones that get the news. It's not been so long since we've studied this in in Mark. Um, 
And we'll be looking at it here in a couple of weeks as well. You remember the account of the shepherds receiving the news of this, to put it here, this arm of the Lord extended out to rescue. And they go and they find him. And the first ones who find him, find him lying in an animal feeder. That's where they find him. His whole life is a life of humiliation. The Westminster Shorter Catechism lays out the humiliation of this arm of the Lord very well. It says Christ's humiliation consisted in, and it gives this list, consisted in uh, his being born. Think the arm of the Lord, God, uh, undergoing the physical act of childbirth, consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life. There's a lot wrapped up in that phrase. The wrath of God and the cursed cursed death of the cross in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Humility is a description of the entire life experience of Jesus. And I would encourage you this morning to, to use this text as an opportunity to try to think in a fresh way about how God has worked on our behalf. He bared his holy arm, extending it out miraculously among men, and when we saw it, what we saw was lowliness and humility. This is an extreme picture. But the picture continues to get even more extreme. As we come into verse 4, we continue to see humility Uh, Humility doesn't go away, but the focus now in verses 4 through 9 shifts primarily to the concept of affliction. It's the affliction on this servant that is emphasized, and it's emphasized in two ways. First, in verses 4 through 6, we see the the affliction suffered here by this arm of the Lord uh, as a substitute. So what's focused on in 4 through 6 is the substitutionary nature of this affliction. Read there with me. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you see the two concepts in verse 4 of grief and sorrows there? Do you remember that you just saw it in verse 3 also? We're supposed to notice that being repeated here. The point is, if you look at 3 and 4 together, Jesus was a man of sorrow and grief, but it was not his sorrow and grief. It was ours. When he came and lived the life of a man of sorrow, acquainted with with such things, it was because he was taking ours onto himself. This is so crucial for us to understand this as a distinctive difference between Jesus and all the rest of us. I read one man this week express it by talking about the way that the difference between Jesus and us is not just a quantitative difference, it's a qualitative difference. This is describing a difference of quality here. Uh, God does not wait until we have rid ourselves of griefs before sending Jesus to us. That would be a problem because we are a people of grief and suffering. 
This is what we are like. This is what our lives are like. Psalm 90 verse 10 says, The years of our life are 70, or if by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. There's a lot of good in life that is left out there, but the focus is on this description of life as a sinful person, living in a sinful place. What are we? We are a people of grief and sorrow. What is Jesus? Jesus is a person who bears others' griefs and sorrows. That's who he is. This is a qualitative difference between us, and it is also, for us, a perfect match. There's a reality that we see in in these three verses, four through six, over and over again of substitution uh, that God has given us a picture of in the Old Testament. Are you familiar with the idea of the scapegoat? This was a part of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Leviticus 16 talks about what they are to do on the Day of Atonement. Uh, There's a two-part process having to do with goats. And the second of these goats what happens is that the high priest puts his hand on that goat and symbolically what's happening is that the sins of the people are transferring onto this animal and then they cast it out into the wilderness. Well, what is that picturing? But the idea of guilt transfer. Guilt transfer. We have a word for that. It's the word substitute. (laughs) This one is substituting in my place as regards my guilt. And this is the idea that is repeated time and time again in these verses. Verse 4, he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Verse 5, he is pierced for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. And verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When men saw him dying, hanging on the cross, it was pretty easy to look at him and say, this is a man smitten by God. And afflicted. And when they said that, they were correct. But what they could not have realized was that he was, in fact, dying for our sins. And that in dying, he was bringing healing to his people. You see that reality in verse 5. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And so we see this emphasis on his affliction as being substitutionary. Whoever this is, when this arm of the Lord comes and suffers, he is going to be suffering on behalf of the people of God. He's going to be bearing the weight of their sins on his body. Verses 7 through 9 continue to talk about the affliction that this one is suffering. But the focus here is on the fact that he is suffering willingly. This is a willing participant in all of this. Look at the way it's described here. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And listen to the end of verse 9 here as well. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So you see, each of these ideas as we're building uh, through Isaiah 53, they don't go away. They're just added to. They're supplemented. 
And here we see the willing nature of Christ. Isaiah brings up the Old Testament picture of the lamb here. So we've already seen a reality sort of pointing to the goats, to the scapegoat. Well, now we have a lamb here. And we're used to thinking of the picture of a lamb, the spotless lamb, and thinking about the innocence of the sacrifice. And that's very appropriate. And we can certainly see a picture of Jesus' innocence here. Um, Verse 9 establishes that, that this lamb had done no violence, nor was there deceit in his mouth. So we do see innocence here in this one. But what's being emphasized is the fact that Jesus is choosing to undergo this event willingly. He is led uh, like a lamb led to the slaughter. We need to emphasize that because if we're not careful, we can hear those words, think about that picture. When I think of a lamb being led to the slaughter, what I think of first, for some reason, is helplessness. Some might have more sympathy to animals than others. Some might look at that animal and go, oh, that poor lamb being led to the slaughter. Um, just please know and, be, and guard yourself. We are not supposed to hear this account of Jesus and think of him as helpless. Helplessness is not what's being displayed here. Willingness is what's being displayed here. He is the one that can call down legions of angels at a moment's notice, but he was led away to the slaughter like a lamb. So the, the emphasis here is that on the fact that he was willing. And his willingness, you talk about ideas, in our faith that are precious to us. The willingness of Christ is a precious thing. I read an account this week of a man uh, from long ago, I believe, named Charles Simeon, who was writing about his conversion, uh, and he, he wrote this. In Passion Week, as I was reading Bishop Wilson on the Lord's Supper, I met with an expression to this effect that the Jews knew, talking about Old Testament, about this, uh, this guilt transfer, that the Jews knew what they did when they transferred their sin to the head of their offering. The thought came into my mind, what? May I transfer all my guilt to another? Has God provided an offering for me that I may lay my sins on his head? then God willing, I will not bear them on my own soul one moment longer. Accordingly, I sought to lay my sins upon the sacred head of Jesus. And I think what struck me about that account was the way that he described his his, uh, realization and turning to Christ in those very terms of, I sought to lay my hand upon his head and transfer my guilt to him, and I, th- I just thought, I don't know if I've ever heard someone express their own conversion in that way. It almost can feel um, inappropriate. It almost can feel bad to think, I'm going to take joy out of the thought of putting my hand on Jesus' head and having my guilt transfer into his body. But if, if, if any part of you thinks of that and struggles then this picture of Jesus as the lamb led away to the slaughter is for you. Because this is the way that Jesus presents himself to us. He comes to us as this lamb and he calls to us. You there, 
carrying the weight of the guilt of your sin. Come here. Put your hand on my head and your guilt will transfer to me. It's okay. Go ahead. Do it. I want you to do it. It pleases me when men do this. This is why I've come. Praise God that our Savior is willing to come. And we're going to see that willingness even more intensely here in the verses to come. But we see thus far that he was afflicted in a substitutionary way for the transgressions of his people, as verse 8 says it. He was innocent in his affliction. He was afflicted uh, as a willing participant. Coming to verse 10, uh, this affliction still does not go away. But what is added on to it now and what is really emphasized in verses 10 and 11 is the reality of what we call propitiation. Propitiation is just a big word that means the turning away of wrath by an offering. So he is offering something to turn away this wrath. Verse 10 Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Regarding verse 10, I appreciate the way I've been reading from the ESV. I appreciate the way that the ESV translates that. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Um, through the week, I use the New American Standard Bible, and that one and others say here, it pleased the Lord to crush him, which is completely appropriate. That is not a bad translation at all. Uh, but I appreciate the, the wording, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, simply because I wonder if we might be misled when we hear it, was, it, it pleased the Lord to crush him, to somehow imagine uh, a father uh, gaining emotional pleasure at the sight of a, such a thing, something like that. That is not what's being emphasized here at all. The point here is that when the Father, in these words, crushed the Son at the cross, the Father was not engaging in that event against His will. This happened according to the pleasure of His will. It is the Father who crushes Jesus at the cross. And, of course, the important question for us is, why does that reflect the pleasure of the will of God. And we do get, uh, uh, in particular here in these two verses, if we're reading carefully, there are some descriptions given concerning Jesus' death that's helpful to us. Notice, first of all, that Jesus' suffering here is going to be temporary. Verse 10, When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Edward Young says of this, It is of importance also to note that the servant himself will see the seed. If he were to die and remain dead, that would be impossible. Hence, this verb makes clear that death will not hold the servant, but rather after his death he will come again to life, and as a living one will see his, his seed. So this is nothing short of a prediction of the resurrection of Jesus following this suffering. And if that's a part of God's intended plan here, then we understand that this is far from being, in any complete sense, a loss for God. This is a gain for God. Jesus will endure much suffering, 
And after suffering faithfully, he will be restored and the redemptive plan of God will have prospered in his hand. Jesus' efforts will succeed in accomplishing God's plan of rescue. It was the Father's will that this would happen. His soul here makes an offering for guilt. And the result of this guilt offering is the securing of blessings for his people. He shall see his offspring. And at the end of that verse, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And if these things are true, then it makes sense that this would be called God's pleasure and his will. If Christ is willing to suffer, the result will be nothing lost and everything gained. You remember the very purpose for which God created was that he would be put on display and glorified in all of his perfection. At the cross, Jesus comes and dies and then rises again. Loses nothing. And gains everything as we think of the redemptive purposes of God. Now, that all hangs on one thing. That hangs on the willingness of Christ. This is all the case if Christ is willing. And wouldn't you know it, that is exactly where Isaiah moves next in the verse, where we see that even as this plan is according to the Father's pleasure and will, it also pleases the Son, even the suffering servant himself. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Now, maybe this is just me. I think verse 11 can be a little bit confusing because there's a lot of pronouns in there. There's a lot of he, 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 his. So let me clarify something and tell you that all of the he's in verse 11 are all pointing to Jesus. Okay, So we can read it and say, Out of the anguish of Jesus' soul, Jesus shall see and be satisfied. By his, by his knowledge shall Jesus, the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous, and Jesus shall bear their iniquities. Jesus is the one who is in anguish here. And he is in anguish. And that's something we will see here in the weeks to come as we move toward the cross. But just look at what this says. Out of his anguish, he shall see something and be satisfied. This doesn't say after his anguish. What this tells us is that Jesus, as he is suffering the wrath of God and bearing the weight of sin, in the midst of his anguish, there is something he sees and it satisfies him. It's an amazing thing to say. What does he see? What he is seeing is the success, uh, the effect of his anguish. He is seeing that our chastisement has fallen on him so that we can go free. And notice that it says that that sight satisfies him in the midst of his anguish. You need to think about, we need to think about this morning, the fact that what this tells us about the kind of person our Savior is. Jesus is the kind of person who enjoys clearing sinners of their guilt. Even when the cost of such a thing requires that he bear that iniquity himself. That's the kind of person Jesus is. 
the kind of person that hangs on a cross and sees our redemption and is satisfied by that sight. My friends, he is willing. And even the anguish of the cross is not enough. I would add one more thing to that before we go on to verse 12. Notice here that Christ is not, not only described as uh, willing in this selfless, loving way, but it says that he is the bearer of knowledge. Do you notice that? By his knowledge shall the righteous one make many to be accounted righteous. Christ knows something, the result of which is that many are counted righteous. This reminds me of uh, something that we went through uh, back in Job 28, many, many, well, several months ago, four or five. I was preaching from that passage. You may or may not remember uh, that. And uh, Job asked the question there, where can wisdom be found? And he laments that no man can find it. It can't, it can't be found across the, the face of the, of the earth. And then in verse um, 23, there's this major shift, and he says, but God knows the way to it. God knows the way. That's where my mind went when I, when I saw this description of Jesus as possessing this knowledge that has this result. He is, he is knowledgeable and he is willing. And we, we find in Christ here then a direct rejection of something ancient, an, an ancient line of questioning. Uh, I think first done, if I, if I remember right, by a Greek philosopher named Epicurus. Have you ever heard this three sets of questions. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? You heard that sort of a line of questioning? Well, here stands Jesus, according to Isaiah 53. Jesus is able. He knows the way. And he is willing. He has dealt with sin. And because he knows the way to it, and because he has accomplished it to us now, he in fact is the way. As he himself has said. He has satisfied the wrath of God for all who cling to him by his offering of himself. Finally, we come to verse 12. And this is where that building uh, ends. We have seen these three realities uh, continue. Humility continues through this chapter. Um, and, and, and each of them have done the same until we get to this point. Now as we see the fourth reality that's pointed to, that is the reality of reward. And at this point, humility is finished. Affliction is finished. All that we have is reward. Verse 12 says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now the word therefore here makes it plain that this portion Jesus is getting, he's receiving as a reward. As a result of what he has just been said to do. And it's coming to him, you see in the middle of this verse, it's coming to him because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And I hope that you can see your hope right here in the midst of this verse. But why does that bring any hope to us? This is describing what God has given to Christ as his reward. Why does that bring us hope? 
It brings us hope because Jesus receives and then shares. What he receives from the Father, he shares with his people. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Speaking of us. So certainly not strong in many ways. Strong in our trust in him. Strong in faith. He has interceded for us and earned what was required and then turned and shared it with us. And this is why the New Testament speaks about this concept of Christians as co-heirs with Christ. Romans 8.17 says, We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. It's amazing to me how Isaiah 53 lays out all that Jesus planned to do, came and succeeded in. This is what he has done. Is it not amazing? Jesus knew the scriptures. Jesus is God. Is it not amazing that he came and did what he did knowing the cost? Knowing the wrath that was to be faced. Knowing what he would suffer in bearing the weight of the guilt of our sin. This explains what we saw last week. This explains why Jesus, a man with such power and confidence, the man who said in John 10, I lay down my life and I take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. What kind of man says that? This explains why such a man as that could tremble and anguish almost to death in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows exactly what he is facing. And as we continue in the weeks to come and we move on toward the crucifixion in the Gospel of Mark, we, we must remember these descriptions in Isaiah 53, written 700 years beforehand. Descriptions of the what, descriptions of the why that Jesus is marching towards so willingly so submissively, and in the stead of all of those who will trust in him. It is this offering of Jesus made on our behalf that we remember this morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. What is set before our eyes this morning are symbols. These are symbols of the body and blood of Jesus the body broken for us, the blood poured out for us. His blood institutes for us a new covenant. And as we partake, we show our participation in that covenant. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And as we participate together in obedience to Jesus' commands, we find nourishment for our souls here. As we corporately proclaim the Lord's death and meditate on the promises that are yes and amen in Jesus.